That's right, I'm Chance Dorlin, and welcome to This Week Korea, an Anything Goes panel discussion program featuring the opinions of expats and Korean nationals from time to time on some of the biggest but perhaps often underreported stories from the last week. On today's show, he's an Irish journalist based in Seoul since 2010, and his work has appeared in the Christian Science Monitor, Narratively, The Daily Mail, Shisain, NK News and the Korea Herald, just to name a few. I know there's a lot more. John Power, great to have you here on the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And of course, he's a teacher who came to Korea in 2005 and has been working in that field for about seven of the last 10 years. And last year in 2014, he created the Korea Underground Podcast, one of the great podcasts to come out of South Korea, where he and other hosts and weekly guests have uncensored discussions about life here in the ROK. Stephen Levy, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? And our final guest says he came to Korea on a whim in 2009 to irritate his mom, but he ended up falling in love with the country, and now he's working on his PhD in international relations at Hufts, the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Matthew Hinshaw, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chance. It's going to be fun, I think. Well, yeah, let's hope. Uh, and, of course, I'm an American radio journalist and a former Peace Corps volunteer living and working here in Seoul. And along with Matthew, I'm one of the people behind Korea FM, an online radio station that features independent musicians and podcasters from the Korean Peninsula, such as Mr. Stephen Levy and the Korea Underground Podcast. And for more information, you can find out a whole lot more by visiting koreafm.net. So, gentlemen, let's uh, get moving on with, uh, I guess, this sausage fest, unfortunately. <laughs> No female presence on the show this week. I apologize. I'll do my best to try to not only have a female on the show next week, but uh, I, I like to try to have a Korean national as well from time to time. Uh, our first topic here is something that I think we all perhaps, if not can relate to, have probably heard about. And uh, that's driving in Korea and uh, a lot of the deaths that result because of that. The amount of people killed on South Korean roads quote, surged last month, actually. And of course, Korea has one of the highest fatality rates in the OECD. And the reason that we saw this surge last month is because of precautions over MERS. In June, drunk driving checkpoints decreased due to all the things going on with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and that illness, and police caught 38% less drunk drivers, a factor that appears to have led then to this 50% increase in deaths for the month of June this year versus last year. However, at the same time, it's interesting to note that despite that increase, the actual number of overall deaths during the first half of 2015 has seen a decrease of 12.1%. Now, that's, of course, a great thing to hear because, as I mentioned, according to the most recent OECD statistics, Korean traffic fatalities per capita have once again gone number one with 104 fatalities per million people. Now, that's better than non-OECD countries like Albania, Georgia, India, Russia, and Ukraine. But in the OECD, Korea easily beat out the second-worst country, Poland, which only has 88 deaths per million. And that country was actually first just a few years ago, but they were able to reduce that rate while Korea has more or less remained steady in the last few years. Uh, 
something else I want to point out, anyone who's done some driving in Korea or been in a car from time to time, you've probably seen that a lot of Koreans and foreigners as well have these dash cams that constantly record video in case of an accident. It seems like a good idea, right? Well, they're actually referred to as black boxes in South Korea, as in a plane's black box. And one Korean morning show actually has a regular segment called The World Seen by a Black Box, where they have a lawyer go over the footage, says who's responsible for the accident and what they have to pay percentage-wise for the costs, showing that while even TV shows have been able to cash in on the accident and death culture of Korean driving, you might be able to make the argument that the crashes and the deaths themselves are perhaps not receiving the same amount of attention. So, gentlemen, uh, let's discuss. Well, um, I've noticed that... uh it, there's a big difference between living in a rural area and living in a city. Um, the traffic in Seoul is much more dangerous than the traffic is in Gumi. And the, uh, that's because that's where I live. And I've noticed that police, they often stop you in Gumi for just simple things like jaywalking. And here, the police, they don't do anything. Have you guys noticed that? Uh, I, uh, John, I know that you've probably, like myself, been more in Seoul than anywhere else. Steve, you live outside of Seoul. Have you noticed a big difference either in traffic culture or um, walking culture outside of the big city? Well, I, I lived in Seoul for a little over a year before I decided I didn't like it and came back to Pohang. But just in driving culture in general, uh, the Koreans seem to be extremely selfish when it comes to how they navigate the road. It's very much me first, me first, me first. And of course, you can't have everybody doing me first. So when you couple that with the prolific drinking culture that they have here, then yeah, that's a recipe for just massive death. But do you think... I mean, because, for instance, obviously, junk driving exists here in Korea, unfortunately, just like it does in the United States and every other country that, you know, exists under the sun. But in my experience, whatever you want to call it, if you want to call it selfishness or they're just trying to get somewhere or maybe someone didn't teach them that they need to obey the laws and it's just okay to go as fast as you can, whatever it is. I would say that all the problems I've had haven't had anything to do with drinking. It, it doesn't seem like any of the people who have almost hit me with their car were drunk. It just seems like they were going somewhere quickly. I would say it's much more to do with drinking than anything else because Koreans have a, a very different culture surrounding drinking, whereas in the more you drink, the better and stronger you are, as opposed to the U.S., where if you're getting drunk all the time, you're kind of the guy nobody wants to hang out with. That's cool when you're in college. But when you're 35 years old and you're getting drunk four or five nights a week, people are like, he's got a problem. Whereas in Korea, that's just what you do. You know, that the corporate culture, the hey, sheep, they're going out all the time. So I think that's influencing a lot of this sort of, you know, the traffic fatality specifically. I, I agree with you with the whole Hui Sheik, this mandatory drinking and eating uh, culture you have with your company. But I got to tell you, man, where I'm from in Iowa, drinking when you're 35 is still pretty cool. So I, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's different from place to place. I'm talking about how society as a whole views that level of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. It's not celebrated in American culture to be that drunk all the time. Whereas here, when we meet Koreans, one of the first things, do you drink soju? Do you know the soju? How much soju yeah, do you that's, drink? Yeah, that's a fair point. Oh, it does oh, come you're up. you're strong, you're powerful, you know. 
Yeah, it does come up pretty quickly here. That's that's a that's a good point to bring up. It's just talked about a lot more, and and if you work with someone, you're probably going to drink with them very quickly. Where in the states, you might not ever drink with someone, just depending on the relationship. Uh, John, from a, a journalist's perspective, or either just um, you know living here in Korea for multiple years, what's your take on this? Yeah, I wrote an article about the. Um, traffic fatality rate in 2012, I think. Um, and the consensus that I gathered from people who worked in this area and, you know, in sort of traffic-related studies was that the, uh, the, the culture of driving in Korea is still sort of patching up to a point that might be expected in some other countries. I think that's something that you see really across... Korean society, where you have a country, an economy that developed so rapidly that you had this very, very quick change in how people lived, but at the same time, the attitudes and the, the behavioral norms sort of caught up more slowly. So you see, you see this kind of um, disregard for safety in, in the building codes in, in the past, you know, in the Sewol disaster. This is a big preoccupation in Korean society now. How can we become more safe? And I think the driving culture is just another manifestation of that. You know, you're talking about a country that went from from literally a Nigerian society to a, an industrial, not mostly city-oriented place in a generation. And so you give, you know, literally millions of people a car to drive for the first time. And I think that's going to be a recipe for, for chaos. Um, now, at the same time, though, I think it's worth noting that actually the, the traffic fatality rate has actually decreased a lot, um, uh, especially in the democratic era. I'm just reading some figures here. In, in 1991, there was about 13,500 deaths on the road. In 2012, there was about 5,300. So that's a, a massive uh, decrease. Um, over that period. That said, Korea still doesn't fare very well in, in developed country standards, but I think we've every reason to believe that the rate will continue to decrease and that the driving culture will become safer as time goes on. I think the country is just playing catch-up, like it is playing catch-up in, in, in other areas where the economic progress hasn't matched the sort of social development. One thing that I thought was very interesting as well about this story was the reason offered for the increase in the road deaths was because, or at least the guess from the police was, because there was fewer inspections for drunk driving because of the MERS outbreak. So because of the quarantine measures, less, fewer police were checking drivers for their alcohol level and so on. And I find this really interesting because for all the panic and the, you know, the consternation about MERS, you know, if we believe this theory, there's now been a 50% increase in the number of road deaths in one month because of the panic over MERS, and yet MERS killed, relatively speaking, a handful of people. Yeah, so how many people died because of MERS, not the disease, but because of what human beings did and reacted to MERS? Yeah, well, it just shows you, you know, the power of unintended consequences. People, um, it's funny how, you know, Governments like to think they're in control of all these things, pulling all the strings, but there's all these sort of cogs in the machine that we don't even think about. So I, th I thought that was kind of noteworthy. So the, the point you made is something that 
can be made regarding almost anything in, in Korea, as you mentioned. And we talked about this last week when we were discussing the Lotte Tower, is that Korea is catching up in a lot of ways because technology and infrastructure have just surged while other areas such as safety or you know other things that um, you notice after living here for a while and you're really surprised that it's still that way, you know, it, it's kind of catching up. Uh, LGBTQ rights, for one thing, for, for a country that seems so Western. Right. I mean, I think, like, just to reiterate that earlier point, um, in 1991, there was almost three times as many people killed on the roads as today. So um, you can see that the, this issue is moving in the right direction. Um, and obviously it's, it's terrible that some people had to die in, in that process, but I think it's, it's sort, of a, sort of a natural reaction of, of development, and especially we have a development that's so rapid that you know, institutions can't even really keep up with it. I mean, in my country, Ireland, um, in my country, drink driving used to be quite acceptable. It would be quite normal and you know, celebrated, to use Stephen's words, to have a few pints and then get in your car. Um, and in the last, you know, few decades, that attitude has shifted and people now are, are much less forgiving. And our road fatality rate has plummeted. I, I forget the, I don't have the figures to hand, but Ireland used to be quite a bad offender in Europe. And now it's, it's road deaths are a fraction of what it used to be. So there's quite good precedent to show that a coordinated policy can, can address this and alleviate this problem. And it seems that Korea is doing that even if it's still an outlier at this point. I'd kind of like to see a MAD program developed in Korea because, as John said, the same thing in Ireland happened in the U.S. where it used to be just sort of slap on the wrist of fence to get caught driving drunk back in the 60s and 70s. Like, oh, well, you know, he had a few, just go on home, you know, flip it off. But then they brought attention to the number of people that were dying as a direct result to drunk driving, and that brought about a culture shift. So now it's, it's a very serious offense if you get caught drunk. They changed the laws. And they not only changed it, but they enforced it, which is another big problem in Korea, how they enforce laws that they already have. So I, I would like to see something like that. Well, I know in one of my classes, there was a Polish guy, because you mentioned Poland, and there was everybody else, and there was a Korean, was Korean, and there was me. And the professor came late to class one time. And the reaction amongst, he said, he got class, and he said, oh, I was in a car wreck, sorry, I'm late. And the reaction amongst all the Koreans was, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? And the first thing the Polish guy says was, who was drunk? So <laughs> I, I don't really know if, I mean, I'm kind, of, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I know some people from the other countries that you mentioned, Poland. And I think, as we've said, Korea is a specifically a unique case because it's catching up. And I think Poland has caught up, but they're the kind of society that's just like, you know what, we're under the shadow of the former Soviet Union, we're all drunkards, deal with it. And Korea, they're more about their image and, you know, what they say. And as you say, it's kind of like, oh, well, we might have drunk driving laws, but we might not necessarily punish them. So I think that's part of it, too. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go out there and say that uh, Poland is just full of drunkards. It is interesting that you... um brought this up, the idea that a country, when they have a high rate, perhaps it's one way to look at it, but when Korea has a high rate, as John already mentioned very eloquently, it's catching up, and perhaps that won't be the case soon. So uh, I guess my final question here, and, and Steve, you kind of brought this up, um, you talked about Mothers Against Drunk Driving bringing some MAD initiatives. What do you guys think, just really quickly, would be the way to fix this? Because once again, in my experiences, 
I'm not, I'm not going to say that I'm not just going to, you know, cross the street and not just get plowed into by a drunk guy because that could happen in Korea. That could happen where I'm from, the United States. But just last week, my girlfriend were walking home in a crosswalk and one of these tiny two-door cars that's the size of, like, maybe a giant bicycle, it feels like, it just drove right in front of us and I just all of a sudden screamed because I was so caught off guard by the fact that this car almost hit us and he slowed down afterwards because he was navigating a very thin road and I I was going to go over there and just start breaking stuff on his car like he almost hit us and I was so surprised I was so shocked and my girlfriend looks at me and she just says oh yeah like she wasn't surprised at all she wasn't caught off guard she was just like yeah it happens that guy was not drunk so how do we fix that guy? Does that guy need to go to better driving arms or that girl? I, I don't know who the driver of that car was. Does that person need to go to better driving classes? Do we need to have cops on every street corner writing tickets like they do where I'm from? Um, do we need to have cameras everywhere sending tickets out in the mail? How do we fix this? Because I was literally almost killed yesterday and it really, really scared me. I love living in Korea, but I think I'm going to get hit by a car. I'm not going to die any other way. I think the government would really, it's not a one a one solution fix, but I think the government really has to sort of make something like this a priority because when, when you have such a systemic level of irresponsibility around automobiles, whether it's the drinking or whether it's a casual disregard for stoplights, whether it's, you know, parking anywhere you want to and screw the other guy, like there was a, there was a building fire a few months back where some people died because in the parking garage, the person had backed up, just didn't care. It's like, I'm going to park where I want, backed up against the emergency exit. So the people were trying to get out, and the, the, the car was blocking the door. So there's, there's a disregard on multiple levels of auto safety or what you can do with your car. So the government, I think, really has to start at the beginning and say, okay, we need a, a large educational program about automobile safety. You start with driver training. You, you have more stringent driver training. Um, you really crack down on, you, you put intense fines on speeding, you put intense fines on running red lights, and I think it's not, it's not going to happen right away, but you will start to raise a generation of young people that will then start driving that they will take it seriously, and they say, okay, this is something that we just do in our society. Your girlfriend's a good example. She's like, well, that just happens, because she grew up in an environment where these things just happen and that's what you do. But if you start creating a system where, okay, this happens, but you're really punished. So I need to be more careful. Then you will see a shift over a generation of people, you know, not treating an automobile. Like it's, it's just a little, you know, spongy bat you can smack people with and there's no consequences. Yeah, no, I'll buy that. That, that sounds, that sounds uh, like the way to do it. Anyone else disagree? I mean, I suspect that, most of the things that we would expect should be illegal are already illegal. So I imagine that it's a question of enforcement. Um, I don't actually drive myself, but I hear people living in Korea complain constantly about um, the police here failing to enforce uh, traffic rules and failing to crack down on traffic violations. I don't know why that is exactly, um, but if that is true, then I think that's an obvious place to look at. And as we see from the story you mentioned, if we're to accept the police version of events, um, police enforcement in, in Korea apparently can be quite effective and it apparently can be very consequential. We're talking about a 50% increase in the um, road fatality rate in a month, just purely based on the measures of the police. So, um, you know, if you 
strengthen whatever enforcement exists there, then I think that's something that could make a difference. And as we see, the rate has already plummeted quite considerably. So, you know, I think they, they, it looks like they're going in the, in, the, in the right direction. And I would expect that in the next two, three, four, or five years, that rate is going to decrease. Okay, so good discussion. Uh, let's move on just for the sake of time. Uh, we're jumping from one topic, driving, which uh, obviously as came up, is connected to alcohol, which is something that's very, very accepted here in Korea. And now we're moving to marijuana, which is something that is not only not accepted in Korea, but it is um, downright, how would you say it? I guess we can get to it, but I mean, Koreans, when when you say the word marijuana, like Koreans like recoil, like they're like, oh my God. I would say it was demonized. <laughs> yeah, demonized, sure. I, I'll take that, demonized. So, this uh, this week, this last week, a Seoul court sentenced a male K-pop singer to 18 months in prison for smoking marijuana three times with this decision. The Seoul Western District Court handed down the sentence to Kang Min-ho, better known by his stage name E-Sens. I'm hoping it's E-Sens. I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find the pronunciation. <laughs> Let's go with E-Sens. For smoking marijuana, like I said, three times between September 2014 and March of 2015 at his home, and I love this, in a parking lot in Western Seoul. Kong was also ordered to pay a fine of 550,000 won or about $476, but the court was also very quick to note that this was not the singer's first offense. In 2012, he was sentenced to 14 months in jail for smoking marijuana, but that sentence was suspended for two years. Who's to say what's going to happen with this 18-month sentence if he's actually going to have to serve it or not, but they have handed it down. And that's because under South Korean law, the use of marijuana, as Steve mentioned, I would say is demonized, but technically it's banned and violators face up to a maximum of five years in jail or a fine of up to 50 million won. Now, a little bit of information about the United States. Some of us are from the U.S. Since 1996, 23 states, as well as Washington, D.C., have passed medical marijuana laws, and voters in Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington State have also passed initiatives legalizing the sale and distribution of marijuana for adults 21 years of age and older. And Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, now permits adults 21 years of age or older to grow and possess, but not to sell, limited amounts of marijuana. However... Very important to note, these state marijuana laws do not change the fact that using marijuana continues to be a federal offense. The feds don't recognize it. Some of the states do. And so you have conflict. And I want to point out, uh, while Barack Obama is getting a lot of credit lately for all the things he's been able to do in this last term, and as he should, he's gotten a lot of stuff done, a very progressive president, whether or not you like him, you do have to admit he's gotten a lot done in recent months, as well as you know his two terms. He has been much worse on marijuana than George W. Bush ever was. The amount of federal raids, the amount of stuff that people have had to deal with in states where it's legal has been much worse under his presidency, which is funny because he's admitted to marijuana as well as other drug use. And if you believe one book that was recently written about him, he really, really liked to smoke the ganj. I mean, this was a guy who apparently, I don't know, once again, this is like an unauthorized biography, but he apparently really liked it. So uh, what do we think about this? Steve, why don't you start off? Uh, you mentioned demonized. Could you talk about how marijuana is demonized uh, in Korea to the point that someone you know, could get 18 months in prison for smoking it three times? And this is a K-pop star. This is someone who has money to buy a lawyer. Um, well, 
just sort of a little self-promotion, my podcast actually did a show on this, I believe sometime last year, where we, we did a whole show just about the marijuana situation in Korea. Now, what I found as I was digging through that is this sort of started in the 70s with Pak Chung-hee, Pak father. Before this movement he created to sort of demonize marijuana, to outlaw it, it was fairly common among, just like we, we think about it in the U.S., where, you know, you had like the hipsters and stuff like that that were smoking it in the cafes. And to this day, a lot of older people that live up in the hills and stuff, they still smoke it, and the cops will show up and, like, you know, take their marijuana away, but they won't throw them in jail because, like, well, they're old people, you know. But he started this sort of campaign against marijuana. It was the sign of the feckless youth, and these were, you know, they were sympathizers for North Korea, and, you know, we have to get rid of them. And so they made an example. I, I don't, I should pull up my show notes for that show, but there was a singer in the 70s. He was sort of a folk rock singer. And they put this guy through the ringer. They made an example of him. They arrested him. They put him in a mental institution. They tortured him and embarrassed him in front of the whole nation. They had him on news programs and stuff like that just because he was a marijuana smoker. And that sort of began this movement against it. Now, I don't smoke marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana, but I'm very much for legalization because when you look at the numbers of like, the, the problems with marijuana or you know the possible side effects, and we go from alcohol, which kills, we know, kills thousands of people directly and indirectly every year, to marijuana, which has never killed anyone. Well, you know, in, in, indirectly, aside from, like, a guy falling off a roof because he's high out of his mind, you're absolutely right. Like, you get liver disease from drinking. You, you have all these other health side effects. But th they're always saying, where's that study that shows that marijuana has killed someone? And, and, and it doesn't really exist. No, because it doesn't. I mean, if you're going to say, well, he fell, then you have to say, well, how many, how many people does aspirin kill every year? You know, we have all these things that are perfectly legal that kill thousands and thousands of people. And yet we have this one thing that's innocuous. It doesn't hurt anybody. And it is completely illegal and it's punishable by severe prison fines or prison sentences and fines. And it's just absurd. So I think... As far as this case goes, I'm not surprised that he got thrown in jail because that's the law here. We, we pointed out in the podcast that, look, it doesn't matter what you think, you know, politically or about its legality. If you do it here, you're asking for trouble. If you're a foreigner, at, at the least you will get deported. You may spend some time in prison here before they deport you. It's up to them what they can do. Um, yeah, you, and you say at the least because um, uh, the the details are a little hazy, but um, <laughs> not because of, of marijuana, but just hazy because it's – Story I didn't pay too much attention to, but there I believe in Suwon, someone tied in with the military, or maybe someone in the military, and I don't want to badmouth the military if this turns out to not be true, but a friend of mine who now lives in Japan, she was teaching English in Korea and then decided to move to Japan and do the same thing. She had a friend, and she told me the story, that her friend, I believe, was an American or maybe a Canadian, living here in the Seoul area, Seoul, Suwon area, and she was buying marijuana from someone, and this person got caught by the police, and the police said, keep selling for six months, and they racked up all the this list of this person's customers and then they like raided this bar and they arrested a bunch of people and you know some people pled out and they got lower sentencing or whatever and some people just like left the country and this girl was a real teacher back home like maybe went to school for education like has a teaching certificate and so she didn't want to ruin her future of teaching in the states so she went through the whole process did the dance went to court paid all these fines um, I'm not sure she like testified against other people but she cooperated with the investigation and all of this six months long all of this was to net people buying and selling marijuana which 
I'm not saying as as I agree with you, like it's illegal here. Don't do it. It's stupid. Respect the laws of the country that you're in. But the whole operation, as it was described to me, sounded like something they would do in the United States for like human trafficking or like some sort of organized crime syndicate that was selling guns. It didn't sound like something they would do for marijuana. But then again, this is Korea. That's what happens. Yeah, um, I'm I'm reading this story. It's um, it, 18 months in prison is a very harsh sentence. I think we all agree for um, using a soft drug three times. Um, but, you know, like Stephen said, I think just don't do it. It's not worth Generally, Asia takes a much different approach to drug use than Western countries, um, and they have very severe consequences. So I would stress to anyone who's um, contemplating looking for drugs in Korea that it's really not worth the, uh, the potential fallout that could result. He's, he's absolutely right. And I remember reading an article from the Korea Times about how which you could like go online and just go to Craigslist and type in marijuana and get delivered straight to your house. And I'm thinking, how dumb are these people? Like, you could go to jail for, you know, three years, possibly, and it, he's right. It's just not worth it in this country. If you really want to smoke marijuana, you know, take a two-hour flight to Guam, smoke your heart out, and come back. Like, <laughs> no, and that's that's a really good point because a lot of people do do that. A lot of people go uh, to to the Philippines or Vietnam or Thailand or something like that to do drugs uh, on the weekend or on like a five day vacation, which is is kind of common. Maybe you get like one or two of those a year as a as an English teacher in South Korea. Um, also, um, I've I have some people that have told me that they went to those same areas to do much more than just smoke marijuana. Um, so it is it is interesting because whether or not you agree or disagree with it and we as we've already said stick with the laws of the country korea is an interesting place because literally you are just a flight of an hour or two away from somewhere where maybe it's not legal but it's- I, I think you want to be careful about advising you know maybe teachers to well you can just go to guam and come back because the law is different in korea if they catch you if they test you positive you can still be punished even if you have nothing on you you have nothing in your apartment if you said well, i was in thailand last week or i was in cambodia they could still arrest you, charge you, and kick you out of the country if they test you positive. Absolutely, yeah. Not, I'm not, I'm not saying like go do it, but I, I think my my point was is that in Korea, where it it seems so obvious that it's not a good idea, if you must. My my two cents would be maybe it would be slightly wiser to go to another country where it, it is more the norm, especially for like someone visiting there as a tourist. But you bring up a good point, Steve. Let, let's talk, I guess, about the, the drug testing in Korea. Could you talk about as a teacher what you have to do? It's usually you have to get drug tested when you first arrive to the country. But for someone who's been here for so long, do you just receive them every so often? And do they let you know or do you just show up to work and they tell you to get a drug test? Whenever you sign a new contract as a teacher, you get a drug test and a medical checkup. The medical checkup is ostensibly for AIDS. They say, oh, it's a health check, but they're just checking you for AIDS. And that that was passed, I believe, in 2007 in a response to the anti-English spectrum crowd, where you know they were trying to attack English teachers, and they, they painted us as all AIDS-carrying, drug-addicted pedophiles. That was every teacher here. Uh, and the whole thing sprung about. So when I first came here in 05, there was no drug test. There was no uh, medical check. There was no background check. I didn't have to go to the police station and have to go to get my fingerprints. It was just like, you know, come in, 
and you're fine. So in one sense, I can say, well, okay, that's good. They're, they're requiring some more steps. You know, they want to make sure that you're not a criminal. But the AIDS testing is pure, you know, racism because that's just based on, oh, well, you're a foreigner. You might have AIDS. And they have you go to these seminars. Like uh, once a year, they, they put on this thing where they, they give you, okay, this is why you shouldn't molest your students. You know, it's, it's really degrading and insulting. And when you look at the actual numbers of crimes committed, foreigners commit a fraction of the crime per capita than Koreans do, but we're constantly demonized as drug-addicted, AIDS-carrying pedophiles. Yeah, so much so. John, I, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but could you maybe talk about um, – I think this is something that I, I may have heard you mention, and if not, I apologize. But would you would you say that if a foreigner gets caught for either committing a crime that is sort of able to be sensationalized, either like violence against a Korean or drugs, would you say that gets played up more in the media than a normal Korean? I personally have noticed when foreigners are in the paper for crimes, I see their names more than when I see crimes committed by Koreans. As you've mentioned in many interviews in the past, you'll just see like a Kim or a Lee or a Pak, but then no first name and no company information. Whereas when I see stories written about foreigners, it often will have their nationality and their full name. Right. Um, you know, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to quantify these things. You know, by doing sort of a PhD in, in content analysis or whatever. Um, but you know, I think I think in a lot of countries there's a certain angle that can be played up when you have a foreign national commit a crime, right? Because Unlike with local, you know, there's a whole immigration aspect, right? I mean, some people would argue, well, you know, we have our own criminals. You can't really help that. But when a foreigner comes here, that might represent some kind of failure of immigration policy or, or screening or what, what have you. Um, and I do, there have been, I think, cases where the Korean media has misrepresented or exaggerated the threat of foreign criminals. I mean, I think that's demonstrably true. To the point of, of making reports that are, are almost almost funny in their uh, hysteria, you know, so you know, you get to the point where you have news reports about consensual relationships between foreign men and Korean women, but you know, they're, they're kind of icky. They're kind of, they're kind of scary because, you know. Um, so, I mean, I do think that happens. And um, as, as for the naming, I don't know. I, I, I have seen a lot of stories like in the Korean press where the teacher still won't be named. But then again, you're like talking about probably the only teacher in Busan or somewhere, uh, you know, teacher surnamed uh, Smith or whatever. Um, so it's probably quite easy to identify them. But I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think there's any hard and fast policy of naming foreign suspects or criminals. But I'm, I'm not contradicting what you, you've seen. Yeah, no, I, I just, I know that uh, recently I've seen a couple where, where I was surprised because you've, this is like your soapbox speech. You always say that, like, they never name the company, they never name the individual, but I've been, I've been really surprised. Maybe in the last six months, I, and obviously as a foreigner, when I see, stories written about foreigners committing crimes like i not only want to know what dumb person made it harder for me to live in korea because some people ruin it for everyone else i'm not trying to play the victim card here there are foreigners that do stupid things but you know like i just want to see how they're portrayed and i was surprised last six months or so i've seen some names but i, I think you're right that it, it's kind of hard to say one way or the other anecdotally that was just my experience in the last six months the funny thing about the i mean the media thing here is there is no there is no concrete rule. So, for instance, that marijuana story, 
that guy was named because he's a celebrity, I suppose, is the rationale. But it's not a legal requirement per se. It's not a, a strict re- legal law that the media cannot name criminal suspects. Um, but they tend not to. And I suppose perhaps there is some sort of risk of being sued. Um, but it, it seems to be case by case. From what I can see, it, it seems that once you reach a certain level of fame, then your name seems to be fair game. But ordinary criminals tend not to be. Even, even heinous criminals, I mean, people who kill people don't get named in the media generally. Yeah, I think it was Suwon for some reason. This this big um, southern suburb of Seoul has had some murders the last couple years, and I, it seems like every time that they catch somebody, it just gives his last name, even though you know more or less this person probably killed someone. Uh, so yeah, that's something that you just see a lot. And, and once again, John Power, he's done a lot of interviews. He's written a lot about that. So if you're interested in kind of how things get portrayed, um, especially not naming names, not naming companies who will be it'll be a headline like company poisons people with food product and it will be like a company starting with the letter k um john writes about that stuff a lot so do a little google search for his name and we'll talk a little bit about that after the show as well um and then finally our last topic here south korea is a freeloader that is according to at least one man by the name of donald trump while, re- <laughs> while recently campaigning in South Carolina, U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump, who, by the way, is doing very well as an American right now, so embarrassed Donald Trump is doing very well in the polls, although it is early on, the man alluded to the fact that as a wealthy country, South Korea doesn't deserve U.S. protection. Um, it- it's a little complicated here. He was rallying against Washington's defense commitment to Saudi Arabia. He then mentioned South Korea. Someone kind of interrupted him, and it, it-, it got kind of stalled but he, he's mentioned this in the past this is not the first time he's called south korea out on this um approximately twenty eight thousand five hundred american soldiers are stationed here at the uh, right now and last year south korea was responsible for 861 million dollars of the cost for maintaining the u.s presence on the korean peninsula however that figure is less than half of the full cost so definitely not getting a free ride but south korea is not even paying half of those costs and you know, America has been paying for a very long time to, to protect South Korea. So it's kind of scary because I don't like Donald Trump. I would hate to see him be the president. But I got to tell you, in a, in a certain way, I think I agree with him in, in, in like the tiniest bit. And, and I think a lot of other people do as well. Um, so, John, you actually wrote an article uh, about this. I cannibalized your article for The Diplomat to, to get these facts. Do you want to maybe add in here a little bit? Yeah, well... Touching, I suppose, on what you said, regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, um, he did touch on a constituency in U.S. politics that hasn't been happy about the status quo for quite some time. So there have been people, I would say particularly on the sort of libertarian right, um, you know, the kind of Ron Paul school of thought, who sort of have said, you know, why is a rich country like South Korea having its defense subsidized by the U.S. Um, And there's all sorts of arguments about why that is the case. Um, You know, and the funny thing is here in Korea as well, there's opposition to the U.S. presence from the the left wing. Um, But but that said, the the Korean government has time and time again, you know, made it very clear that it wants the U.S. here. It's made it very clear. Not only that, it's actually you know, declined to take over control of its own armed forces in, in wartime, repeatedly. 
it keeps kicking the can down the road saying, oh, we're not ready, we're not ready, we're not ready. So this is something that Korea Inc. Um, overall seems to want. Um, and the opinion polls in the US are, are quite supportive of it as well. Quite large uh, majorities of Americans seem to think that the military presence in Korea is a good thing. At the same time, I would sort of venture that I suspect most people haven't really thought about it in any kind of great detail. It's not at the forefront of the political question, right? If, there, if, there, if you wanted to talk about reigning in military activity abroad, Korea is kind of a, a not a very compelling argument. People aren't being killed in Korea. They're not being, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not a, like a sort of a shocking situation. And, and, just, and just to add into that, I have a couple of very good friends who are in the military. And aside from being bored, they have a lot of cool things at their disposal on base. It doesn't seem like a horrible life living in South Korea as part of the military. I've been on Yongsang base and they have everything. They have their own fire brigade. They have their own fire service. They've, uh, they've like Popeye's, Burger King. They've got a kitchen put. They've got pitches. They've got a school. They've got a hotel. <laughs> like, it's it's just mini America in in Seoul. Um, so I mean I'm I'm not in the in the military, but I suspect Korea is one of the easier posts, right? You know, compared to Afghanistan or uh, all sorts of other places that you can go. Um, but well, yeah, I mean I think I think Trump touched on it on a nerve there that reflects a certain minority of U.S. political thinking. But I don't think it's a particularly winner either. I don't think the average person really probably cares either way too much, but, you know, maybe maybe he can make something out of it. I mean, the, the other point that I suppose I should make is that a lot of people would argue that, you know, the U.S. isn't in Korea just for the good of its heart or whatever. It's also benefiting geopolitically and being ter- in terms of being having a military presence close to China, which is increasing its power all the time. And um, so, you know, some people would argue that it's reasonable for the u.s to pay for some of that at least and it's sort of a, a quid pro pro uh, you know korea gets its defenses um, bolstered by the world's greatest military and the u.s gets uh, a launching pad for its sort of asian um you know its asian activities or its um it can be influence in asia especially with china on the up and up no i agree um one of the cornerstones of actually Japanese foreign policy since the end of World War II has been the Yoshida Doctrine, which states that Japan would let the United States provide for its defense until at such a time it was capable of providing for its own defense. And then when that time came, Yoshida, he was prime minister like immediately after World War II, he said, oh, well, we'll, we'll pro- let the United States provide for our defense until we can provide for our own defense. And ever since the 70s, they've slowly been creeping up, you know, rolling back or rolling into the Japanese Defense Force, all of these things. And recently, they've even started arms sales. And Japan is actually now starting to assert itself and become a player, again, militarily in the region. And as such, the need for troops in Japan is starting to go down. And because of that, the United States, as you say, still wants to maintain its uh, presence in this part of the world because you got to go back to the Truman Doctrine and the Nixon Doctrine and all that. But the only other option besides Guam or Hawaii 
which aren't really that great of options for a quick strike against someone like North Korea if they decide to, to nuke people, is to have bases in Korea. And so, yes, in that case, it's justifiable because Japan is starting to take over its own defense, which means that our quick strike capabilities that are in Japan are just more or less going to be transferred to South Korea. So Matthew is an American. I'm an American. Uh, John is from Ireland, but he just gave probably the best description of what all this means for America. So touche to you, John. Uh, Steve, uh, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? I, I feel like I, I have no idea where you're going to go with this, but I, I, and I'll, I'll throw my two cents out there. As I mentioned, I, I kind of do agree with Trump, which, which scares me. To, to agree with Donald Trump, but um, I, I would, I would, you know, I, I'm sorry to my friends in the military, but I would love to see those numbers reduced. Not only because I, I feel like there's not a lot of stuff being done with them right here. Um, obviously, if there's a war, if there's a conflict, we'll really want them in, in a hot minute. But more or less, I, I don't think they're doing a lot. And not to say that if they went away, the money we spend on them would go to poor schools, but like. You know, there are schools in America that just need to be burnt down. Like, they are so bad off that we just need to start over and build a new school. And I just, I hate to see all these troops around the world in places where, in, in my mind, especially here in Korea, I don't see them doing a whole lot. Well, with with the money going to schools, I think that's just a fantasy. I think the government would just find somebody else to do with this. With the conservative Congress that we have right now, they're not going to give any money to schools. So that's, that's wishful thinking as far as that goes. Uh... With Trump, too, I mean, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So I, I kind of agree with Trump, but I still think he's a dick. Now, I, we also did a show about this uh, last month where we talked about uh, you know, the Koreans and the U.S. military. And I agree that they should leave, but I don't think that's going to happen. And part of it is because South Korea doesn't want it to happen because I think that they get a lot of benefits uh, not even related to the military presence here, not not about, oh, we needed to protect us from North Korea. No, they don't. But I think it gives them certain carte blanche to act irresponsibly in other areas. And I get this opinion, uh, what was said much better in an article that we referenced on the podcast uh, by this guy named Craig Urquhart, who wrote a really good piece about American soldiers needing to get out. And it was basically just so it would force South Korea to grow up. Because they act yeah put on put on the big boy pants, right? I mean, like take care of yourself, you're a rich country, you're increasing the amount of charity work that you do abroad um yeah, I, I read that article yeah, it was a really good piece, I thought, and i I didn't represent it properly, I didn't prepare for that show as much as I should have, so I apologize if you guys listened to that, it was sort of all over the place, but he he ties all these other social ills in South Korea to the way that they deal with the U.S. and what they allow to happen because they have the U.S. to protect them if they screw up. And I, you know, having, having been here as long as I have now, like we talked about, you, you see all these little problems that come about because South Korea is, is, is sort of childish in a lot of ways, like the way that they're constantly beating the, the anti-Japanese drum and the way that they won't let the comfort woman thing go and it's been 70, 80 years and it's, look, it's done, it's over. Most of the people are dead. You know, all this stuff is goes on without any sort of hindrance because the U.S. is here and saying, well, okay, yes, look, we're sorry. South Korea said something stupid, but, you know, don't worry about it. So I really think they need to go. Now, with that being said, I think that would cause some big problems as well, but not for North Korea. I think that that would really hurt their economy because I live in Pohang, which has a, a small military base just outside the city, and the soldiers spend a lot of money. 
most of it drinking, but you think about not so much what the U.S. is doing for South Korea, but how much money is transferred to the South Korean economy by these soldiers having a constant presence here. So I think if they were to leave, like most of them were to go out, South Korea's economy, a lot of these cities would take a big hit. So I think there's a lot of vested interest beyond just the military aspect of it, of these soldiers staying here. I think you get a lot of people saying, no, 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 we need their money. We, you know, I know bars here in Pohong that they will make half their income for the whole year on a, on a troop deployment that only lasts two or three weeks because the guys are in there. They're spending hundreds of dollars a night buying shots and buying beers, and they come back two or three nights a week, and then they're gone. It's like, oh, we can just kick back. We don't need any more money the rest of the year. You know, So there's other implications there that you would have to think about. If they go, what does that mean for all these other deals? Sure. No, and that's a that's a good point to bring up. Sometime it would it'd be great to to speak with you uh, here on the this week Korea podcast about the issues with Japan and the comfort women and all that stuff. Having lived in, in Germany for a year myself, I have a slightly different thought process when it comes to Japan and comfort women. I I agree that some of the things that have come out of Korea haven't been phrased the best way, but Japan has not really cross its T's and dotted its I's when it comes to the stuff it needs to do for World War II. But that's a, that's a discussion for another time. But th- this thing that you mentioned about the money situation, that, that's absolutely true. If people just left today, it would leave a big hole. But this argument comes up in the states like oh we can't switch over to green technology what about all these jobs we have with the coal and with the oil and all this other stuff you just got to do it at some point man like some people got to lose their job and they got to get a different job and if you look at a place like Itaewon which is right next to this large garrison um, it's it's all Korean now like I mean a couple years ago like 10-15 I mean this was like the foreigner villain Itaewon is still you know if there was going to be a foreigner villain Seoul in Korea it would be Taiwan, but you talk to these business owners and you look at like the new businesses that are going up. There are so many, so many people or Korean people coming back to that area, and they know it's because um, they keep delaying it. But eventually, the military presence is going to leave. And I've I've speaking with people in the realty business. I'm speaking with bar owners and and journalists who are just talking about how Koreans are just so excited to go back into that area and all the business opportunities and kind of make it their own again. And uh, you know whether or not it's a good or a bad idea. Uh, I think it shows that you do have success, possibility for success after this big group that's spending hundreds of dollars a night on shots on shots leaves. It, it doesn't mean that it's it's all game over. Oh yeah, I know, and, and I agree. I mean, I, I still I still I would like them to leave, but when it comes to if they will, it's not so much the military dynamic. You're going to have a lot of people that have a vested interest in keeping them here. A lot of people make their living serving the military you know providing them with you know whatever it is that they need locally can we go back to the part about that you said it's time for south korea to put on the big boy pants and because in my opinion and we talked about this extensively in my class but and i've you know hit hit it over the years is in the 60s and 70s south korea actually did attempt to put on their big boy pants i mean after the united states they were the number one contributor to troops in Vietnam and money and they got burned big time because then Nixon got into power and he said, sorry guys, not really enough. We're going to take out troops. And that's when South Korea's economy kind of stagnated for a little bit in the seventies. And of course it then exploded in the eighties after they realized that maybe they shouldn't go the military route. But I mean, 
South Korea did try that route, and they got burned. So I'm not so sure that it's the right thing to do this time. Well, I don't want South Korea to start interacting in the world the same way that, like, the United States does. I don't want to see South Korean troops in all these other countries. I think the, the whole idea for me of defense, and maybe I'm naive, but I, I don't think it's even necessary. I, nobody's going to attack anybody. And you look at something like, okay, well, we need to put China in check. You know, they're, China's getting a lot more aggressive in their foreign policy with, with regards to Taiwan and things like that. But seriously, what are you going to do? You're not going to go to war with China. Nobody's going to say, oh, well, if you do that, we're going to drop bombs on Shanghai. No, you're not. We got we to gotta wrap up the program here. We're hitting our hour mark. But, Steve, you, you made a good point, and, and I guess I'll just kind of piggyback on that a little bit i i agree like you know the next conflicts it's all hacking we're seeing all this stuff everyone's getting hacked and maybe like small limited military engagements here and there except the middle east you know that that's still they're, they're still fighting traditional wars there um but if the united states does leave which i think you and i agree we would like to see at least some sort of talking of phasing you know the, the huge presence of, of americans in south korea to somewhere where it wasn't a huge presence if they do leave, someone's got to pick up the slack. I don't think North Korea is going to invade. I'm no expert. This is obviously just my opinion, and I'm not a military expert either, but it just seems to me, logically, if America pulls out, South Korea has to up its game. That's just the game that they've been playing. Now, you might disagree with that, but it seems to me like that's probably going to happen, whether or not it should, whether or not it's a good idea. So. Uh, I agree. Let's not have countries invading each other and doing all those things. But if the United States leaves, I think the only other obvious route is that Korea then has to take over that role. Not that military goes down, but that, that they fill that hole that would then be created. So we're going to have to call it a day. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Once again, that's uh, Irish journalist John Power. John, how can we uh, find out more of what you're doing, the stories you're writing? Well, you can go to my website, I suppose, johnfrancispower.com, or you can, um, I don't know, just keep your eyes out. I write for six or seven outlets, so it just depends on the day of the week or whatever I can get done. So maybe something floating across your Facebook feed might have some relation to something I did, or maybe not. Yeah, you've been writing some good stuff. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I often see articles that gets po- that get uh, posted by my friends, and then I check out the uh, who wrote that. Oh, that's a that's a John Power one. Your friends what idiot wrote this? He's like, oh, I know that guy. Oh yeah, I know you exactly. When you when you get big, John, I. <sighs> Talk to him here first on This Week Korea. Steven, you, uh, of course, do the Korea Underground podcast. How can we find out more about that show? Well, we have a website also. You can go to korea-underground.com. The podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher and your favorite podcatcher. So we're, uh, we have just wrapped up our 25th episode, and we're doing good. We're having fun. Yeah, you, you guys took a little bit of a break, but I, I think you're you're back now doing some more episodes. And, uh, and Matthew, uh, lastly, you're a PhD student over at the the University of Foreign Studies, the Hufts University here in Seoul. Why don't you just tell me uh, why are you studying here in Korea? Why did you decide to do your PhD here? Um, well, uh, I kind of like it here, and I found out that I could get it for free because my grandfather fought in the Korean War. And I said, you know what? This is a great place, great place to live. So I decided I'm going to stay and research what I love, which is educational issues and that's what i'm researching that's right i i you were telling me about this you're you're looking at either koreans or asians when they go to the united states um korean specifically they do very well in certain areas and you're looking at not only why they do well in those areas but why they don't do well in other areas like why they don't do well perhaps in the arts but they do well in the sciences is that correct 
Um, not necessarily performance in these areas, but representation. So when Korean American students go to America, they tend to go for STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And they don't tend to go for liberal arts like music or art. And I'm discovering whether or not that's a U.S. piece of policy or if it's a Korean cultural problem or, you know, all the complications from that. Well, I look forward to reading your book, Matt. Once again, John Powers, <laughs> Stephen Levy, and Matthew Hinshaw, thank you guys so much. You can check out This Week Korea and other fine podcasts on koreafm.net. Sometimes you want to